Good morning. Good morning. Wow, okay. Everybody's pretty awake. The first thing I'd like to do this morning is to make sure that everyone knows a fundamental truth that I learned back in 1999. And this truth is that dressing up in a dinosaur costume does not always pan out like you'd expect. Dressing up like a dinosaur does not always have the same benefit you might expect it to. You see, in 1999, a friend of mine named Eric and I came up with a brilliant idea. Our girlfriends and our friends were on a weekend ministry retreat west of Waco, and we thought, wouldn't it be spectacular? Wouldn't it be awesome if we went and we rented full-body dinosaur costumes? and stood out on the middle of the highway as our girlfriends drove by. Wouldn't, wouldn't they love it? Wouldn't they think we were creative geniuses? So that's what we did. We rent and rented a bright green and a bright pink dinosaur costume. We got a driver and we went out west of Waco, got out of the car, we knew they'd be coming by, sent our driver off around a corner and waited. And here they came. We, we thought they'd stop, we thought we'd talk, we thought we'd laugh, and they did none of that. So as, as we're waving, like idiots, they drive by at about 70, 75 miles an hour. Every car in the convoy whizzes by, showing no sign of having seen anything. A little bit dejected, but not yet defeated, we pile into the car, we take the heads of our costumes off, because that's the only way to get any Nissan Sentra, if you're wearing a dinosaur costume. And then we start taking off at 90 miles an hour after them. Slightly illegal, but that's all right. And as, after about five minutes of pursuing them as fast as we can, lo and behold, here we see them coming back the other way, going 90 as well. Apparently, they realized they had seen something and they knew us well enough that they should probably go check it out. So the two cars passed at 90 each. We realized they never see us. And so we're like, aha, here's another opportunity. So we, we get up, we stop the car, we hop out, and we know they've seen something. So we go ahead and send our driver back to Austin because we'll ride back with our girlfriends, right? And uh, yeah, don't get ahead of me. Anyway, and so we're sitting there, and here comes the car. And they're going about 30, and they see us, and we do our waving again. They slow down to about five, and we're like, oh, this is it, this is it. And of course, they come to a stop, and we make some dinosaur noises, and they start laughing, they realize who it is, and we pile into the car, and we expect the heroic reception that we're receiving. And this is our moment of glory. Until we heard the voice from the last car. And the staff workers running the retreat started yelling at the top of their lungs at Kate and the other people in the car to get the strangers that they've picked up out of the car, because in no uncertain terms would they were allowed to pick up basically hitchhikers, which we didn't, know if, what, we didn't know if they didn't know who we were or what, but we felt we had no option, so we dutifully climbed back out of the car, head still intact, by the way, and watched as every car in the convoy rolled by and watched our girlfriends and all our dreams of glory drive off into the sunset two hours from Austin in the August heat with no viable means of transportation. 
it was disappointing, to say the least. And while that story is funny now, eight years later or whatever, we face disappointments every day. And while my dinosaur story was a small disappointment that mattered very little, the disappointments that we interact with, the failed expectations are on a much larger scale. Uh, maybe it's having to care for an aging parent and their house and their estate and their health. Maybe it's some person or institution that you thought you could trust that you feel like has let you down. Or maybe it's something that we've dealt with every summer here at Skillman and feels maybe a little more intense this year, at least for me personally, where people are being moved on every year, but this year seems a little bit more significant with some of the people who are, who are being moved on to other places and other tasks by God. And so the question this morning we'd like to answer is how can we handle that disappointment before it starts to make us disconnected or disillusioned with those people and those institutions? Well, in our story this morning, we'll see two travelers who are dealing with disappointment. And we'll see how it starts to make them disconnected and disillusioned until Jesus himself shows up and turns them completely around. And as we walk alongside them on the road to Emmaus this morning, we'll see connection and we'll see revelation. We'll see connection and we'll see revelation. So if you'll turn to Luke chapter 24 with me, starting in verse 13, and hold on, it's a long passage. That very day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And, and while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, uh, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, between, before God and all the people, and and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and, and besides all that, it's the third day since this has happened. And uh, Moreover, some of our women of our company, uh, they amazed us. They, they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they... They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he is alive. Uh, some of us who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as they had said, but, but they didn't see him. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to where they were going, and he acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, 
stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in with them to stay, and while he was at the table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. (laughs) And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and, and he has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So, connection and revelation. First, let's start with connection. Our two disciples, our two travelers, are disconnected, but they're disconnected because they are ultimately disappointed. They've been with Jesus for three years. And you can hear in verses 19 and 21 the hopes they've pinned on Jesus. They followed him for, like I said, three years, and they've had these hopes and dreams as to what he was going to do Day in and day out, they were giving everything they had to be with him. And now what do they have? They have a dead Jesus. They have shattered hopes and shattered dreams. They have to be thinking, what did we do with just three years of our life? What a waste. And so that dismay, that disappointment, leads to disconnection in three key ways. The first is distance. We're told that they're walking away from Jerusalem towards Emmaus. And we don't know where Emmaus is, but Luke often uses geography, uses traveling to drive home points. And that's what he's doing here. The entire second half of Luke, from Luke 951 to 1948, has been one long journey. Jesus starts in a place, and the whole time he's going to Jerusalem. And they've been with him the entire time. And now they're leaving that destination. They had pinned their hopes on arriving there, and now with every step, They think they're leaving behind a dead Jesus. They're being more and more disconnected geographically. Secondly, they're disconnected from the larger group by virtue of what they believe. They get the report from the women. And look in verse 23 and 24. What they say about it. They say they didn't find his body in verse 23. And they came back saying they'd seen a vision of angels and said he was alive. And the key part is at the end of 24. They had someone go to the tomb, saw it just as women had told them, and then they say, but they didn't see him. And in Greek, this is, is a lot more obvious, but it, basically it's saying, yeah, they, they gave us a report, but they didn't see Jesus. And in case we're, we're wondering, you know, is it really, really them doubting, look back in verse 11 in chapter 24, in the original report. After women, the women come back and say what they've seen, in verse 11 it says, But these words seemed to them like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So, not only are they disconnected by distance, they're disconnected by what they believe from the other disciples. The women are buying in, and these guys at least are not. And then finally, not just are they separated from the people back in Jerusalem, they're also separated from each other. In verse 15, we're told that they are talking and discussing together. And this word used elsewhere in Luke is not a, well, what do you think? I don't know, well, what do you think? Kind of a verb. It's a heated emotional argument. In fact, 
in Acts 9, Luke uses the same word once again to talk about how Paul is interacting with a group who wants to kill him. So this is emotional, this is heated, and would invite inquiry. And that's the situation that Jesus shows up at, that he walks into. Jesus is seeking to connect with them, and he's seeking to connect with us, and he is extravagant in his efforts to do that. First off, he walks up and listens. No agenda, no, no asking questions immediately. He just walks up and is present. And then he asks two simple questions. And the first one is, what are you guys talking about? And that draws out the emotion in verse 17. They stop cold, and it says they are sad. Very plain language. And then in verse 19, he pushes their button a little further. He says, these things? What things? Tell me about it. I want to hear about it. So he draws out all the details of their situation. And not only does he, is he present, not only does he ask questions, he also lingers with them. He lingers for dinner, just like we shared the table earlier today. He does that with them as well. And investing in this, in taking the time, and taking all day to be with these people, he's trying to connect with them. And he's engaging with their disappointment. And he's letting them vent. He's saying, what's bothering you? And they get to vent about what their emotion is, and what they're frustrated with, and how they don't like the situation, and how Jesus himself is a source of the problem in their minds. He lets them vent about him to him, even though they don't know it. And the effect of Jesus connecting with them, you can see it in verse 32. After he's gone, they start to be reconnected. They say, didn't our hearts burn when he was explaining the scriptures to us? This is remarkable. Could you, could you believe it? I couldn't believe it. And then in verse 33, even though it's late in the day, what's their first reaction? Even though it's the end of the day, they've had dinner, is to get up and restart on the day-long journey all the way back to Jerusalem. And when they get there, they do the same thing they just did. They, they don't even get to say anything when they walk in. Everyone else is like, hey, did you know? Jesus is alive, and Peter's seen him. And everyone gets to swap stories. And because of the connection to Jesus, they're reconnected to each other. Jesus is the common thread that connects them all. And the story reminds me of a guy named Ryan Knighton. Now, Ryan had a normal childhood, but then he went blind when he was 18. And he learned to cope. And uh, he was a pretty successful businessman. And one trip to Chicago, he went through his normal routine, which was to get to the hotel, and immediately his first reaction was to pick up a phone to call his wife and say, I'm, I'm fine, I'm here. But being blind, it was kind of an intensive process. So Ryan walked in the room, and he, he started searching for a bed. Sure enough, he found a bed. And he knew if there was a bed, there was probably a coffee table nearby. And so he, he reached back, and he found the coffee table, but there was no phone. Now, a lot of hotel rooms are symmetrical, and so he searched for another coffee table, and he found that. But again, still no phone. But he kept looking. He searched down this wall, found a corner, searched down this wall, found a sofa. That could be pay dirt. Found the coffee table. No phone there either. Kept going in another corner, down the front wall, found the door he came in on, turned the, the third or fourth corner, whichever one I'm on, and then came down this wall, and eventually he felt the bed behind him again. And he's like, well, I've, I've basically done a circuit. And so finding no phone, he put forth some effort. 
He went ahead and went to bed. Said he'd figure it out the next day. Well, as you'd expect, early in the morning, Ryan's wife called him. Not quite frantic, but concerned. She's like, are you okay? Where are you? What's going on? What, is something wrong? And in doing that, Ryan found the phone, and Ryan got to talk to his wife. And we're similar to Ryan in that, you know, when disappointment comes up, when our expectations aren't met, we're frustrated. And yeah, maybe we think about talking to God. Maybe we think about praying or, or telling him what's wrong. But then we put it off for various reasons. Maybe I don't have time right now. I've got to go do this report for work or write a paper or whatever. Or maybe we feel like God just doesn't really care about this circumstance. Or maybe we feel like maybe this time we should just take care of ourselves because it's really not that big of a deal. And we never make that call. And that's when God breaks in. Just like Ryan's wife. He interrupts us. He interrupts what we're doing. It could be the, the words from, key words from a friend. It could be something as simple as a freakishly cold day in Dallas in July. But whatever it is, it shakes us out of our reverie. And we go, oh, oh yeah, I, sh I should do that. And he starts asking us questions. And we get to express our disappointment because it's more than okay to vent. More than okay to tell him what we're feeling because he asks us to. He prompts us to and pushes us to do that. But it's not just questions. It's not just him connecting to us with questions. Because after Jesus asks questions to engage our disappointment, he gives us new insight and a view, new view of him. Jesus reveals himself. And in this passage, in our story today, he reveals a couple of things. First, he reveals how the prophets point to his arrival. In verses 25 through 27, he talks about that. In verse 27, it says, From Moses to all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the descriptions, scriptures said concerning himself. So he's demonstrating how the Old Testament informs us about him and how he informs us about the Old Testament. Because as we heard a few weeks ago, Jesus is the linchpin of history. He's the fulcrum on which everything revolves around his act of redemption. Secondly, he reveals how his suffering was predicted. And this may come to a surprise, as a surprise to us because we're used to passages like Isaiah 53 where it talks about by our stripes he was healed and he was bruised for our iniquities. But at this time, they didn't have that concept in their minds. And so when Jesus says um, in verse 26, wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? They have to be taken aback a little bit. And in fact, Jesus has tried to drive home this concept at least twice before in Luke, at the beginning of their journey and at the end of their time with him. Turn to Luke 18 with me. Luke 18, verses 31 through 34. Both times we get a similar description of how they don't understand. In 1831, Jesus starts giving a detailed description of how he's going to die, and how he's going to be buried for three days, and rise again. And then verse 34, we're told about the disciples. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. They did not grasp what was said. So he's done this multiple times before. 
but it's only now in the midst of disappointment that they seem ready to hear. So Jesus reveals how the Old Testament points to him. He reveals how his suffering was predicted. And then finally, he reveals himself. Which is the tension of the passage, because in verse 16 we're told that their eyes are kept from recognizing him. And, and we feel this uneasiness the whole time, because early on we're told, hey, Jesus walked up. And now we as the reader, we know it's Jesus, and we know that these guys don't. And it's really weird to have them complaining about him and telling him about, telling him about himself, basically. And that tension is finally resolved then at the end, when he reprises his role from Luke 9, 10 through 17. He does the same thing when he feeds the 5,000 as when he shares bread with them, down in verse 30. He takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he hands it out. And it's in that moment, they, this, this moment just cracks me up every time. I have to think they're just kind of like freaking out, right? Because all of a sudden they recognize him. And I just picture them going, Hey, did, did you know? No, I didn't know. Did you know? No, I didn't know. It's just a, a shocking revelation. And then also, we talked about in verse 23, their main complaint about the women's report was that, sure, they came back with a vision of angels and all that sort of thing, but what they didn't see was they didn't see Jesus. If you remember, they said, yeah, but they didn't see him. And now they do. It's a complete reversal from what comes before. They themselves see him directly. Going back to Ryan again now. You know, his wife called him. And when she called him, he had to be a little shocked, a little surprised, because he thought there was no phone. But because she called, he found the phone. You see, when he was talking to her on the phone, he was half asleep. And then after he hung up, it was still early in the morning. He did what I would do, which is to start to head back to bed. And as soon as he hung up the phone and started back, he slammed into a wall where the bed should have been. And then he felt along that wall, and then he fell back here, and he found a sofa and another coffee table. You see, back when he originally searched the room, he did about a three-fourth search, but when he hit the bed again, he thought he'd covered the entire thing. But because of his wife's phone call, he found the setback alcove where the phone and entirely another sofa and another coffee table existed. And so when she called, his view of the room was transformed. And that's what Jesus does with us. In the midst of our disappointment, when he engages with us, he reveals, not only connects with us, but he reveals more about himself, and it transforms how we see him and how we see the world. With our vision clear, we can move past the immediate. We move past disappointment because we remember that we are not following institutions or movements or even particular people, but we are following Jesus himself. And as we realize that, we begin to see the living potential of Jesus in our lives. And that's the focus, really, of Luke's story here today. It's a validation of a claim made originally by the women at the end of verse 23 that Jesus is alive. 
the risen Lord is alive. So these guys are not walking with just a fellow traveler. As we heard in Colossians earlier, they are walking alongside the king of creation. And it changes how they view the world. And we must keep this in mind. Because if Jesus is still dead, if we're living like he is still dead, then we are stumbling around in the dark like Ryan. Searching around, trying to make sense of our circumstances and our disappointment. And as Ryan said, you know, the problem with being blind is that you get a picture in your mind. And if you get it wrong, you live in that mistake. You live in that mistake. And we cannot afford that mistake this morning. We cannot afford to linger in our disappointment. And I've been trying to think of some way to, to help us remember this. You know, I went fly fishing in Montana, and I... Um, I'm sorry, I thought I'd turn that off. Um, yeah. Um, thank you, I totally lost my train of thought, right? Like, isn't that always, you're in a theater and the phone rings and everything just is totally interrupt, interrupted and disturbing and, I, and that's what makes this perfect. Yes, thank you. That's what makes this perfect. It's not us remembering because Jesus intervenes. He interjects himself into our lives. What he wants for us to do is to answer the call. In the midst of our everyday, of our everyday disappointment, he's calling us. And so I think for the next week, what I'm going to do, and I'd like to ask you to join me, is that every time I'm in a public space, or heck, non-public space, and I hear a phone ring, instead of being annoyed and thinking, Seriously? Can someone turn off their phone? Start asking yourself questions. What if that was Jesus calling me this morning? What would he ask about? What disappointments would he probe me on? How would he connect with me? What would he reveal about himself? And what would that mean for my current disappointment, for my current situation? Because we need that kind of interruption to shake us up. Jesus is alive and is waiting on you and I to answer his call. Let me pray.